primary care knowledge boost, unexplained bruising and bleeding. Hello everyone and welcome back to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Today we are jumping back into some haematology with Dr. Chris Gregory who has been on the podcast before um, quite a long time ago now but he agreed to come back on today to talk about bruising and bleeding. Um, he's a consultant haematologist in the Wigan area. He did some fantastic episodes really early on when we were starting the podcast about interpretation of full blood count results and anemia generally, um, B12 and folate, and then one on immunoglobulins as well. Yes, that was a fabulous <laughs> one. So today we talk about we talk about bruising and bleeding. Um, he gives us some definitions to work with, um, talks about the history, important bits in the examination to look for, and what the differentials might be. Um, bear in mind that he's a consultant haematologist for adults so this is specifically for adults um, the other things that we go through today are things like investigations and specifics on full blood counts or other blood tests that might be worrying and when to urgently refer as well yeah um, so hope you enjoy and we'll be back at the end with our learning points all right so hi chris you've been on the um, podcast before um, but would you mind um, introducing yourself for listeners who maybe haven't heard those episodes Hi, sir. Uh, hi, Lisa. Thanks so much. Um, I, my name's Chris Gregory. I'm a haematology consultant, uh, primarily based at the Royal Albert Edward Infirmary in Wigan. Perfect. Um, and today we are covering different topics from the last time. So we're going to be talking about bruising and bleeding disorders. So we thought before we started, just as a reminder, could you give us some definitions to work with? So what do we mean by easy or unexplained or excessive bleeding or bruising? Sure thing. And, and I think that in some ways gets to the heart of of what the issue is, because obviously from a medical point of view, it may well very much different from a, a patient experience point of view. So I suppose it depends on how you exactly were to count kind of what is what is normal uh, and what is normal expectations. But with regards to kind of clotting values and, ab- and abnormalities in terms of blood test results, rather than I suppose symptom wise, you could be talking about values that are two standard deviations beyond what the norm is or what the mean is. And obviously that means two and a half percent of people are going to have clotting tests below and two and a half percent of people are going to have clotting tests slightly above. And, and that can also, I suppose, go for, for what is is bruising and bleeding, but we don't have a, a, an easy way of talking about symptoms in that sort of way. So anything that might be sort of excessive, I suppose, from a haematology point of view would be bruises that are very extensive, covering large parts of um, a limb or a, a, a surface um, with relatively minimal trauma. Or, you know, obviously, if there is more significant trauma, much, much larger bruises. Um, many of the bruises that, that we kind of get may be sort of measured in a few centimetres, um, but more extensive bruising, obviously, um, would maybe sort of 10 plus centimeters in size for for relatively small um, areas um, obviously there's other bruise or other type of bleeding issues um, one of the more common ones that we get referred is things like menstrual bleeding obviously they may have often gone to the, the obs and gynae team first um, and again if you ask women well on average half of women have heavier periods than the other half because of just the way averages work that doesn't mean half of women have bleeding problems um there have been studies which have tried to look and sort of i suppose quantify what bleeding means uh, for menstrual periods what counts as excessive what counts as more normal and 
generally speaking, bleeding for seven days or more out of a sort of a 28-day cycle is considered to be um, heavy. And then the amount of blood. So if there's the change in sort of sanitary products, tampons, pads, after even one or two hours because they're soaked through the presence of clots, that sort of level um, is generally considered to be very heavy periods um, and runs the risk, obviously, of causing other problems like iron deficiency and things like that. Doesn't necessarily mean that people who have less than those symptoms don't have a bleeding problem, but certainly um, that's towards the sort of extent that we might be thinking about before really worrying. Um, the other factor, and again, not necessarily something that people know about, but is have they had surgery before? And obviously, if they've had some sort of operation or procedure where there's been significant amount of bleeding perioperatively, postoperatively, then again, that might be a sign that there's an underlying bleeding problem. Mm. Yeah, I don't think I'd considered the periods element before, um, just with it being haematology focused. But yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and you've mentioned there about some of the referral type uh, types of referrals that you see coming through. Are, are there general themes that are worth just going through now, just in terms of some of the types of referrals that you see? Sure. So they're broadly into sort of three different categories, three different referral types. So one is someone's done a clotting test. And they're not quite sure of the interpretation of that. So, Guilty. Yeah. Um, so there's a kind of like, there's this constitutive bleeding problem. And, and obviously, sometimes conversely, it may be a clotting problem as well. Um, so that might be more prone to, to clots. Um, the next group is where people or patients are presented to someone like the GP with with symptoms, um, complaining, saying, oh, I've got bruises um, and, and I'm worried about it. Um, and then the third group is is arguably less likely to be from GPs, but is more likely to be then from the surgeons um, who are um, coming along and saying, look, this patient's bled previously or, you know, is bleeding, you know, during the operation or something like that. You know, what do we need to do? Yeah, that's nice that you've split it into those types. So thinking about um, the, I think the most common or one of the most common for us that we wouldn't know what to do with is someone coming in and um, saying they have the kind of unexplained bleeding or bruising they're talking about heavy periods or they're getting massive bruises and they're not exactly sure what's going on and um, so what approach um, would you take to assessing someone um, thinking from a primary care angle who's coming in for the first time like that sure so with uh, like a lot of medicine the the history is is key and uh, really sort of drilling down into to what the patient means by those symptoms uh, and what other factors may have happened in their history that, that may be contributing to it. So obviously asking about the timing of, of this problem, you will obviously know the patient's age already, but whether the patient's young or older is definitely going to have an impact in terms of the sorts of issues that, that we're more likely to, to see and, and diagnose. So if it's someone who, and again, this is arguably one of the more common referral types that we get, uh, women who are postmenopausal, uh, sixth, seventh, sometimes you know eighth decade of life, and they are noticing that they are bruising more easily, um, that may well just be part of an aging process that that is going on. The skin becoming naturally more sort of fragile, blood vessels being more prominent, small knocks may now cause much more sort of obvious bruising. Um, it's not necessarily a a problem that we can do anything about but that's certainly sort of a more common issue as people particularly saying oh these are unsightly you know what's going on with them I, you know, i'd like you to do something about them and it's sometimes very tricky from that side of things um so so certainly that the kind of the 
the age of the patient, the duration that's been going on, has this been slowly building up over time, or has it suddenly started over a period of a few weeks or a few months? And obviously, the acute presentation where they were having normal patterns of, of bleeding or lack of bleeding, and now something suddenly changed, that, that certainly picks my attention up a lot more. Um, then going back and asking about other things, particularly related to for, for women periods and menstrual cycles, um, past pregnancies as well, um, if they've had children, how were those labours, how were those deliveries, did they need blood transfusions afterwards, was there excessive bleeding, um, were the babies healthy, did they have any issues? Um, then also along those sort of lines, any past surgery that includes dental work, have they had teeth extracted or fillings and things where injections have been done and suddenly people have been like, oh my goodness, you know, uh, this is, you know, bleeding more excessively. So sometimes people will say that their own dentists have commented that that they know. And and if, if other healthcare professionals have told patients like that, I assume dentists probably are a bit worried and thinking, oh, you know, this is a bit more than average. Um, medication. So again, for many GPs, you've got the list there, you know, but it's always worth asking. Sometimes people are deciding upon themselves to take the, the odd dose of aspirin and things, which again can affect clotting um, just from over the counter or, or, or other herbal preparations and things, which again, sometimes may have influence on clotting. Um, so just being aware of what the patients recently been prescribed, what they are long-term um, and again, obviously allergies, but that's less likely to have a direct effect on clotting. Um, one of the, the more specific things is family history. Again, particularly with young patients, if they're coming to you with, with new bruising, bleeding, particularly if it's a child, um, is there a family history going on in the parents, grandparents, brothers and sisters um, that may point more towards a, a hereditary inherited bleeding disorder going on here? Uh, you piqued my interest about the herbal remedies that sometimes can interfere with clotting. Any common culprits from that world? I, again, the, the, you sometimes just never quite know what is in these preparations. A lot of the stuff that people are buying from Barrett's in Holland or the health food shops in the UK, I think will be, be generally okay. Um, I've heard at least of Chinese medicines that have may contain things like steroids in them, which again can have an adverse effect on skin turgor and and um, and cause sort of thinning of the skin and make people more prone to bruising and things like that way. Um, so yeah, it, it's more just that have they been taking anything and then obviously if they have, then try to look into it, dig down more. Is there anything which cont is contained in that which may have an influence? Um if you have um, gone through all of that history, obviously the next thing that we would move, we would move on to would normally be examination. Um, so is there any particular examination that um, would be important to do in these patients? Yeah. So again, just inspecting what they are showing you. Um, I know that that's sometimes quite a lot more of a challenge for, for GPs in the virtual world, but um, obviously having some sort of remote access to it or obviously a face-to-face -face visit where you can visualize what, what's been said, because sometimes people describe bruises that sound terrible over the phone but then when you see them you think actually that just looks like a fairly normal sized bruise and it's in a fairly sort of obvious location like your hand or your arm where it, it's pretty common to bump things and again shins is another sort of fairly common one particularly in in the younger adults who are uh, or the, the adolescents who are kind of bumping into things um so yeah so so definitely just sort of inspecting what the bruise they're describing um bruises are um, obviously kind of collections of blood. Blood is a liquid at times. And so people can often notice that bruises are tracking. And so 
you may get a, a, a bump, say, on the arm, but then the bruise will spread. So you get this kind of, sort of smeared bruise effect. And that, that's just normal. That's just gravity spreading the bruise out. And eventually their body will just sort of reabsorb it and, and get rid of it. Sometimes the pigmentation can last for a little bit. Um, so so that sort of, sort of tracking and things is, is, again, fairly normal, but sometimes may think um, that the bruise is, is bigger than it is. Um, you can kind of have a general sort of idea just because it, by the color of it and how the bruises sort of are fading with color and obviously they're very bright and purple and angry at the beginning um may just even be very red if it's it's kind of a hematoma obviously um then becoming sort of more of a browny uh, greeny almost yellowy color um as the bruises are sort of fading back into normal skin tones um so yeah so so that sort of how far gone the bruise is and how much it's settling down uh, whether these are fresh or not um and then just I suppose asking people about whether they have any other sort of particular symptoms, nosebleeds, gum bleeding, mouth bleeding, um, urine samples, you know, you might want to dipstick the urine. Have they noticed any obvious discoloration? So hematuria can again be a sometimes sign. And going back onto the, the history a bit, have they noticed any sort of blood in their bowel motions and things like that? Um, obviously, there can be lots of causes of it. They don't necessarily have to have a bleeding disorder, but again, um, that can sometimes be. And if they do, then obviously examination of that area, because piles, hemorrhoids are, are a pretty common cause of, of uh, lower GI blood loss or bleeding. Um, and so a simple examination of that may point the problem and not necessarily be a, a bleeding issue. Yeah. Obviously, yeah, your red flag worries for um, for colon cancer and rectal cancer and things yeah it's quite complicated um the, i was going to ask the next question was going to be about red flags so would there be any, anything in particular thinking specifically from a hematology point of view that would be a red flag for the from the history or examination yeah so the i suppose the biggest red flags are where people just have massively extensive bruising. So covering large chunks of surface area of their skin. So 25, 30, 50% or very sudden unexplained bleeding from you know, nose gums. Um, so those sorts of problems are arguably more likely to suggest a platelet problem. So a very low platelet count. Um, and there was classic rash of the petechial rash suggesting maybe something like ITP, but acute leukemias can sometimes also present with, with very severe bleeding disorders. Um, and often these patients will have self-presented to A&E, but again, sometimes they, they may just by chance or, or because they, they can see the GP or talk to the GP. Um, and again, many of these patients will have had a full blood count done, which hopefully will point to the uh, at least a, a, a warning for the right diagnosis and getting people into hospital quickly. So yeah, ho hopefully really severe bleeding. Not too many people are sitting around waiting for a GP appointment um, and they'll just self-present to, to A&E or hospital. But obviously there, there can be some times where people are getting these issues and, uh, and they may not quite realise what's going on. So ITP being immune thrombocytopenia. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, and hopefully we'll sort of come, come on to that bit later. Um, but um, just before we do um, think, what about the differential diagnoses? Can you run us through those? There's quite a lot. Yeah, sure. So um, I suppose in, in, in one bucket is the hereditary bleeding disorders. And again, they are much more likely to be related to 
the younger patients presenting. Now, we still do occasionally diagnose people who are more midlife with, with this sort of thing, possibly just because they've not had any sort of particular insult to challenge their, their bleeding tendencies and the disorder has been fairly mild. But really severe ones are often picked up in childhood, so wouldn't even necessarily come to someone like myself who focuses more on adult hematology. So there's the hereditary disorders, then there's acquired disorders. And obviously, that's probably the bulk of what I'd get referred from those, I would be looking more at saying, well, is this a platelet problem? And again, ITP is probably one of the more common platelet problems that, that people have heard of immune thrombocytopenia. Um, but there are some other ones which can affect um, the platelet function. Um, and then the next group of disorders um, of the acquired ones would be then some sort of acquired clotting factor problem. Um, and again, there's a few different sort of potential causes for these sorts of things. Oh, that's really interesting because I was going to ask you about the types of patterns because you mentioned the kind of really extensive bruising or bleeding, really sudden. and That's more likely to be due to a, a kind of a clotting factor rather than simply just a platelet. That It's more likely that you're going to get the particular right. rash when your platelets start, which is like the pinprick rash on the skin, rather than it being really big extensive bruises, although they can obviously still get quite big bruises. Yeah, so there's, there's different patterns to different problems. Um, I know... Um, You've mentioned some of the medicines there. Do you do you get many of sort of from side effects of medicines, ones that might not be as obvious as, as aspirin or clopidogrel or the doax or warfarin? Are, are there any medicines that you see that have caused problems? Yeah, so um it is unusual, but if you read the small print of quite a lot of medications, they will have things like thrombocytopenia and clotting problems as uh, as listed in there. Um, so I have managed patients um, who've developed, we, we presumed it was like an ITP process, but it was triggered by an antibiotic. I think in that case, patient's case, it was amoxicillin. It was quite unusual, quite rare. Yeah. Um, but again, sometimes it can be tricky because the antibiotics are often given for an infection and infections are sometimes one of those things to, to kind of trigger it. Um, but there are in certain circumstances, and this was when I was working in kind of a bigger teaching hospital as, as a registrar, um, sometimes you're able to do further tests to look at platelet function and try and identify antibodies that kind of may be present on the, on the platelets to, to give you a clue whether it's a drug reaction or, or not. So certainly if if the patient's been started on a new medication or started to take a new medication and without any of the obvious triggers, they've developed a bleeding issue. It certainly makes you go back and think, could it be due to that uh, and stopping that medication unless it's obviously given for a real life-threatening indication or uh, would be the first port of call. That's really interesting. So it sounds very rare. <laughs> yeah, certainly not not kind of common in terms of the sorts of issues that we see. But again, it's always one just to bear in mind. And again, it could be a side effect that we've we've not necessarily seen before if there's a new medication out there as well. Again, that's always on the horizon, isn't it? So um, reporting it through the yellow card scheme is, is also needed if, if we are thinking that that's a, a reaction to a medicine. I was going to ask about um, investigations in primary care. So um, you've alluded to full blood counts already and you've talked about maybe things like urine dip before considering uh, that there might be some um, bleeding there. Um, there are maybe some other differentials that we've written down about end-stage kidney disease and liver cirrhosis and things like that. Are there any wider investigations that you think it's useful for us to do at that first point in primary care? 
Yeah, so um, as you sort of mentioned, doing UNEs and, and, and kidney function, again, there's lots of uh, systemic conditions that can affect clotting uh, disorders. Um, the, obviously, the specific clotting ones that most people are probably more familiar with, the prothrombin time, uh, the APTT, uh, and then also fibrinogen as well. Now, in some hospitals, um, fibrinogen is automatically done as part of a clotting screen test. In the Wigan hospitals, um, it, it, it's not. So fibrinogen is something that, that should be requested for if you are genuinely thinking that someone's got a kind of a bleeding problem as well, um, because there's a different group of disorders which can affect fibrinogen levels. And it can also then point to more systemic clotting or bleeding problems, which may be manifesting as well. So um, they're the three sort of main ones that, that they can then kind of guide at least my thinking process when I see those results is to, is there an issue? And if so, whereabouts that issue may be. Actually, when you said there was three, because I heard you mentioned, so APTT and fibrinogen, which I didn't know about that you had to request it separately. What was the third one? Prothrombin time or the INR. So the prothrombin time and INR are um, not exactly synonymous, but um, are essentially the same test. Um, the prothrombin time is the actual time it takes blood to clot different labs use different reagents. And so one lab may have a normal prothrombin time of 12 seconds. Another lab may have a normal prothrombin time of 15 seconds. And the issue came when they were talking about liver transplant patients. So they would phone one lab up and say, well, the prothrombin time is, is 15 seconds. And the lab who had it 12 seconds were like, oh my goodness, you know that, that's prolonged. Actually, mm-hmm. both were in the normal range for those reference values. So they came up with a way of trying to normalize it. And that's what the INR stands for, International Normalized Ratio. So when one lab in Wigan phones a lab up in Birmingham or wherever it is in the world, they can say an INR of one is standardized regardless of what the prothrombin time value is within that, whether it's 10 seconds or 20 seconds, it's actually normal for that lab. And that's just a way of them being able to um, to talk about it. And then it obviously gets more useful for warfarin management. Yeah. Sounds like excellent quality improvement, yeah. the fact that that <laughs> became, yeah, definitely. <laughs> became a, a, a real thing. That's excellent. Yeah. Um, I was just going to ask about um, requesting a film um, with full, full blood time. Is that um, useful or something that should be done? So, um, again, it, it varies from hospital to hospital, but but for the vast majority of cases in Wigan, um, the, the lab will flag if there's particularly abnormal issues coming. Um, so it won't flag for a blood film if there's a clotting problem that isn't related to the platelets. Um, so if there's a factor deficiency, for example, then that's not an automatic request. The, the machines wouldn't pick that up. But if there's a low platelet count, a very high platelet count, if there's other issues going on with platelets, such as clumping, which may be artifactually affecting the number of platelets that, that it can be seen, again, a film should be made automatically for that. Um, so, yeah, hopefully GPs shouldn't have to be requesting blood films. Um, they should just get done automatically. Grand, but maybe worth checking if people are outside of that area to see what their lab does. Definitely, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's usually some lab value triggers to say if a platelet gets to this low, then they'll automatically flag it to a hematologist do blood films so it's possible that very slightly low counts wouldn't have films automatically done particularly if they've been chronic but certainly new big changes um should when would you consider hemophilia screening so um again hemophilia screening particularly if there is a young child involved um obviously i say child 
the haemophilias AB um, are X-linked, so it's young boys, and that can often be the case of around two when they start to toddle and they're starting to get up and, and walking around the place. So again, that that's a particular concern in itself because obviously it raises the question of things like non-accidental injury, and that can often be a, a big one when it comes to, to managing babies um, or kind of very young children who are very easily bruising and even people just sort of grabbing them to, to help cross the road um, can cause sometimes bruising on that. Um, so, so certainly if there's that very specific part of things, you know, young children obviously look like they're, they're, they're being bruised, doing clotting screens is a certain good screening test to say, well, look, you know, does it obviously appear abnormal? Certainly in the very severe haemophilias, you would expect their APTT to be quite prolonged. Um, not so much the INR or the, the prothrombin time, it, um, it tends to be much more the, the APTT side of things. Um, the other group is um, the sort of the young women who may be then starting to complain of very heavy periods. The concern or the more common issue that I might expect for that um, would be von Willebrand's disease that can affect men and women um, like equally. Um, and again, that tends to affect the APTT more than the prothrombin time itself. So, so that that would be the sort of thing when they are complaining of, as we mentioned in the history, those very, very heavy menstrual periods or significant blood loss after a pregnancy, unexplained bleeding, um, severe bleeding after dental extractions, things like that. Um, I would be certainly quite cautious about doing clotting screens if people don't really either have any symptoms or you are just doing it as a concern. So, there used to be a trend to do sort of preoperative bloods and doing clotting screens as part of sort of a pre-op screen. Again, not necessarily something GPs were doing, but but in hospitals, they were coming for their hip replacement and people would check these boxes on the blood forms and get them done. And the results may come back abnormal. And then there's a whole lot of questions. Um, they did. There's lots of studies which have been done looking at sort of routine clotting tests to predict bleeding. And they're generally quite bad at predicting bleeding. Um, outcome. So um, doing those sort of things just as a matter of screening or because you can is is generally avoided. But certainly if someone has got a, 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 a bleeding issue, then that's all, all the history sounds like they may have a bleeding issue, then they're the things to, to do. Mm. Um, the one that tends to affect the prothrombin time the most, um, prothrombin time is generally based around factor seven. Um, and um, the, the main thing that we see is warfarin. So warfarin use um, is the one that is obviously going to affect the um, factor seven the most and pro prolong the, the prothrombin time in INR. Um, but it is part of the sort of vitamin K pathway. Now, warfarin, generally speaking, when it's sort of well-managed, doesn't really affect the APTT. Um, but vitamin K deficiency can sort of mimic that problem as well. Um, and so if you are dealing with someone who is perhaps quite elderly or perhaps has a very, very narrow diet, so um, sometimes it can be young kids who are just really fussy eaters, just chips and crisps and white bread and things like that. So they're not really getting much in the way of green vegetables or equally very old ladies with just tea and toast as a diet. Uh, acquired vitamin K deficiency, even if they're not on warfarin, can sometimes occur. Um, and it's certainly something that I tell my um 
junior doctors when they start an induction um, to be aware of because people sometimes come in on warfarin, they stop the warfarin because their INR is high and then a week later the INR is still high, it's not improved and unfortunately hospital food does, isn't really all that rich in vitamin K. So um, basically they've just had a, an acquired deficiency or it's occurred because of warfarin and we've just not corrected it for anything. Um, so again, sometimes just being aware of that and giving them some vitamin K can help kind of correct that without necessarily needing referral to, to anyone else. That's really interesting. <laughs> um, speaking of deficiencies in and dietary things, um, do you ever check vitamin C? There was a, an interesting article, I think it was the BMJ had a case of some bruising um, and significant um, patterns there. And it, it turned out to be a vitamin C deficiency. Is that common? And do you check it? So generally speaking no and i think um it, it surprised me slightly when when you kind of posed that that sort of question as a as a sort of a, a, in the preparation for this and i thought oh, well vitamin c like no that's sort of a bit of an odd one um and and i know obviously it, it's something that um has been looked at so there have been quite a few kind of clinical trials looking at um does vitamin c sort of help protect against bleeding problems um and the general issue is is no. So um, vitamin C, taking it or having high supplements of it isn't going to make you bleed less. But And, and I think this is the important case from the BMJ case, um, is that scurvy vitamin C deficiency does cause bleeding or can cause bleeding as one of its more sort of serious side effects. Um, I, I have only seen one case of vitamin C deficiency um, that I can think of when I've been at Wigan over the past sort of nine, 10 years or so. Um, and that was in a 40 odd year old gentleman, if my memory serves me correctly. And there were fairly significant safeguarding concerns around that. Mm. Um, he actually was referred to me. So I got involved in his care, not, not through bleeding, but through a pancytopenia. Um, so he actually had an, an anemia, low white cell count, um, but he also had other signs and symptoms of, of scurvy as well, problems with the, the mouth and the and the chelation in, in, in the corners. And yeah, at some point, vitamin, vitamin C was proposed. It was found to be rock bottom. He treated it and, and fairly quickly his blood counts and other symptoms did improve. Um, so yeah, I am aware of it, but um, I would be surprised if it is like the only symptom or the only sort of thing to, to, to raise concern about with a with a vitamin c deficiency i certainly wouldn't advocate it in some if someone's looking very well well nourished and things there's no other stigmata of of a nutritional deficiency present um to just routinely check vitamin c um but but yes certainly vitamin c deficiency is, is one thing to be aware of so it's a quite quite extreme case but yeah so that that puts it in its place really when it's useful yeah um we've got some really amorphous questions about interpreting blood results <laughs> which you can take in any direction and they're so big it feels mean to ask you just can you talk us through <laughs> the interpretation now that I'm looking at the questions we've, we've asked you um so in, sure. in the context of um a patient that we've we've seen we've done the um they're getting some easy bruising um and they're having heavy periods their blood's come back into us um maybe we'll just sort of focus on what we might be looking for essentially so we've done we've got in front of us their full blood count um and possibly a blood film and their platelets and clotting um so if we start with full blood count what things would concern you about a full blood count particularly here thinking about um 
initially ruling out or thinking of hematological malignancies, the leukemias? Sure. So um, the 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 reason why they they are likely to be to be bruising or, or in, in the context of that is because the platelet count is low. Um, platelet counts can be quite low, and people still don't have any signs of bleeding or bruising. Um, and sometimes, particularly in the context of, of chronic thrombocytopenias, platelet counts of over 30 uh, are not necessarily something that, that we would give treatment for unless there's particular other risk factors. Um, so a platelet count that is less than 30 and certainly in single figures, um, that runs the risk of uh, much more significant bleeding and bruising problems, particularly the big worry is intracranial bleeding. Um, so that that is the sort of platelet count level where the risk of intracranial bleeding does start to to escalate. Mm. Um, so so that's certainly a, a thing which we would say, look, if if this isn't known, if it's a new finding, if there's no obvious trigger for it, that needs further investigation and and possibly some management. Um, obviously, again, if we are worrying about that in the context of leukemia, it would be unusual for it to just be a low platelet count. We have had some patients. Um, and again, this may be a primary care nightmare, but they were referred to us and we missed it for a little while with just a low platelet count. We started them on steroids. Things seemed to get better. We're thinking it was ITP. Um, it was a young female. And then the blood started to get worse again. So the platelet count came up and then down. Uh, we did a bone marrow biopsy and it was full of um, ALL or acute lymphoblastic leukemia. So um, in that case, um, that's that's always something which we just have in the back of our minds as well that... Um, is there anything going on? Does this feel like it's a straightforward sort of ITP type process or do we need to do other things like a bone marrow biopsy uh, before we start things like steroids because steroids are a part of treatment for ALL. Um, so that's not something I'd expect primary care to get involved with, but sometimes you, you can be, even we can be deceived that the rest of the full blood count can be abnormal um, and there may only be one abnormality. Um, obviously, you know, more significant changes, very high or very low white cell count, particularly if it's things like the monocytes um, causing that. That's often how the, the the blood lab machines will flag blasts, um, which are, again, kind of the early precursor white blood cells, which are, are one of those classic signs of, of leukemia. So, um, yeah, very high, very low counts. Um, anemia, again, is not a great pointer one way or the other. But again, if they are anemic, then you, you might look and see, is it a microcytic or macrocytic anemia? That could point you perhaps towards vitamin or mineral deficiencies. Um, so it might then also make you want to do iron stores, B12 folate, um, because again, that could potentially be related to more of a malnutrition issue. Yeah. And so just to, in terms of the platelets, so new problem with bleeding and new platelets under 30 in they go um and yeah. <laughs> um but for so that's an urgent immediate referral um the people who might might have a new lower platelets in that kind of gray area and have got symptoms so say 80 um you yeah. know those types of low in terms of management do you think two week waits or advice and guidance or picking up the phone yeah I, again it, 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 if if they are if they are symptomatic of it, and as a GP having seen, you know, bruising or bleeding issues and things, then I would be happy enough 
for those ones to be two-week referrals. Certainly, it could be something like a myelodysplastic syndrome or even something potentially like an evolving AML where there is, even though the number of platelets isn't that bad, there is platelet dysfunction. So the platelets that are there aren't functioning as well as they should be doing, and therefore that can contribute to, to more bleeding, bruising problems. Um, so yes, certainly if, it, if it's a new thing and it, the trend seems to be going down, it's not infrequent for us to get referrals where patients have had chronically low platelet count and it's not really all that lower, but there's perhaps a new GP um, who's come along and wants to reinvestigate everything. Um, in those contexts, just because, again, it's been low for a long time, if they're not having any new symptoms, I wouldn't necessarily say they need to be referred in straight away. I mean, if they've never had any investigations to look for or if the cause isn't obviously apparent, like they don't have known liver disease or something like that, um, then I think it is reasonable to refer them on just so that at least they've been investigated appropriately because it could be something like a myelodysplastic syndrome that's remained very stable and arguably it might be better to, to know about it so that the right people can just keep an eye on it. Yeah, but that would be a less urgent referral. Yes, yeah, that could just be a sort of a routine one. Perfect. And then what about the um, clotting bloods? What would worry us in those? Yeah, so something that's just really unexplained. Again, sometimes patients have had these tests before, but sometimes it may just be a completely new test. So elevations of, of PT or APTT over one and a half times their sort of normal value. So i.e. INRs greater than 1.5 or APTT ratios are greater than 1.5. That, that in our lab would, would give sort of an APTT of 45 seconds or so, maybe ab above that. So if they've got bleeding symptoms and that sort of prolongation of their, their clotting test would make me think, look, you know, it's worth investigating these things um, because there may well be some sort of underlying bleeding problem going on. Um, you can have completely normal clotting tests and still have a bleeding disorder, particularly sometimes there's things called platelet storage pool disorders, so where people can have dysfunction with the platelets, even though they've got normal numbers. So sometimes if, if you've got a good going history and there is definite concern, then even normal values wouldn't stop you from referring. But if there's a query, then by all means, an advice and guidance or a phone call to say, look, you know, am, am I being daft? And we can just kind of talk you through what you've seen, what patient's describing. Um, before I forget as well, the fibrinogen, um, that, that tends to be on the low side if there's a bleeding disorder. So fibrinogens below the normal reference range, again, without an obvious, uh, without an obvious cause for it, is usually worth investigating. Commonest causes for that are, are kind of liver problems. Mm -hmm. um, now, I, I don't know if I'm opening a Pandora's box because the blood films are just a whole world of different words. Um, any top tips <laughs> for GPs looking at a blood film? So I, I'm totally aware that, that we get trained to, to write lots of long Latin words that no one apart from us really knows. So I hope that in Wigan, we, we try to also give a little interpretation as, as well um, to say, you know, this may suggest a lymphoproliferative disorder or this may suggest something. Um, but particularly with bleeding issues, the, the main thing to look out for is whether the lab have flagged that this appears to be platelet clumping or this appears to be a true platelet disorder. Um, everything else in the context of easy bleeding and bruising probably isn't going to be all that helpful. You're more likely to pick up information just from looking at other blood tests, such as the kidney function or the liver function test to see if there's organ dysfunction from that. So certainly you can get red cell changes, which may point you towards a kidney problem or point you towards a liver problem. But 
I, you know, I wouldn't diagnose a liver disorder just on purely what the red blood cells look like down a microscope, particularly if they've sat in a test tube for a good few hours before being processed. Um, so the main one is if the platelets are low and the blood film has flagged platelet clumping, then that may suggest that actually the platelets aren't that low, but it's an artifactual problem that when the platelets go into that EDTHS tube, they start to clot and clump together. Many times our lab will actually not issue a platelet count in those situations because it's an accurate one, but sometimes they will issue it and say platelet appears normal, but clumped. Um, and in those circumstances, there are ways of then using different test tubes, which aren't EDTA filled to try and get a more accurate result. And in many patients, it might correct. There are still some, right, even in these specialized test tubes, the platelets still just clump. Um, and that can then get very difficult if, for example, surgeons want to know what the exact number is before they're about to cut a patient with a knife. Um, for primary care, it probably doesn't really matter that much if the patient isn't symptomatic. If they are, even if there's clumping, then it's fair enough to pick up a phone, write to us, um, see what see what our take on it is. Yeah, thank you for that. That's nice and clear. <laughs> um, so I have a question for you. So sometimes we get patients who are worried about leukemia. There might be somebody in their family that's had it before um, and they, they might have had a symptom uh, of something, but it's kind of settled down. You're less worried. We've done a full blood count. We've done a clotting screen. We've examined them. The obs are fine. They've got no lymphadenopathy, either cervically, axillary, or inguinal, no hepatosplenomegaly. Have we fully ruled out a hematological malignancy at that point? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a really tricky one. The sort of answer is more or less yes. Um, and the, the certainly completely normal full blood count is a, is a very reassuring factor for. Um, excluding an obvious acute leukemia. Um, these things, unfortunately, can present very quickly and things can change over a matter of weeks. So just because you check it today doesn't mean in six months' time they aren't going to have leukemia. But at that point in time, I think it is fair enough to say that those bloods would effectively rule it out. Um, the, I suppose the, the reassuring thing that you can tell patients in those contexts is that they are often worried about because there's a family history and in the vast majority of these cases certainly in the acute leukemias there's no real inherited problem for it so just because their mum their grandparent died um, doesn't mean that they are at higher risk of having an issue and hopefully that's that's sort of a comfort to many of them um, to know about um, the the real i suppose family risk comes when there's twins involved and often when the twins are children and one twin gets leukemia then there is particularly in identical twins there is a very high chance that the other twin will develop it as well so they wouldn't use the other twin as a bone marrow donor for example in those contexts now that's a very very specific situation and most people they're probably in their midlife and they're thinking you know i'm starting to worry about you know how i'm going to go and um, they're starting to then think could it be something like leukemia and in most cases, a lot of these are, are very acute. There are obviously a group of chronic leukemias, so CML and CLL, um, which are, again, very different. But again, in the context of a normal full blood count, you wouldn't be too concerned about them either developing those ones. Um, if they have an elevated lymphocyte count or an elevated neutrophil count and basophils and things, that, then, you know, that might point to one thing or another and you can 
get on the phone to us or or refer and, and and we can take it further a lot of the time we do get patients as well who perhaps have a lymph node um, that's another kind of common anxiety and worry um, maybe pea size maybe a bit bigger gps have often reassured patients um, but still refer them on to us as well for sort of almost double reassurance and it's a tricky one because you can only deal with the patient in front of you but but certainly an ultrasound scan is, is a really good way of being able to see whether a lymph node looks reactive or malignant. Um, they preserve the fatty hilum in reactive lymph nodes. So um, the ultrasonographers often comment on that, saying this looks like a reactive node, in which case, even if it's up to a centimetre or even slightly over a centimetre, we don't get concerned about it unless it's suddenly starting to grow and change. Um, and again, then a biopsy, uh, even an FNA, can often be enough to put people's minds at rest. So um, there's other routes rather than a direct referral to a haematology clinic that people can kind of go down to sometimes uh, alleviate some concerns that patients may have. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Chris. Um, so um, kind of when we get to summing up, um, Chris, we often ask if there's any good resources for primary care or patients. Do you know of anything that we could point people to or link in the episode description? Sure. And with regards to clotting things, there's um, there, there are some kind of good articles out there. There's um, one of the I suppose resources that, that we would often use as haematologists is the British Journal of Haematology, and they have uh, the British Society of Haematology, BSH. Uh, they have some guidelines on there, and they do publish ones, and they update them, and there are some things on clotting. Um, and they do try to write them in the context sometimes of, of primary care investigations as well. Um, obviously, it's often the haematologist who, who will read them and then try to sort of write the guidelines appropriate for their primary care colleagues and try to do things like this to, to spread the word about when to investigate and when not to. But there certainly is a good uh, primary resource if people are wanting to, to read up on uh, what clotting tests are, are useful when, then there's some information on there which may be useful. Brilliant. So we will uh, link to those. And uh, what are your main take-home points from today's chat? So my main take-home point would very much be um, take a good history um, if someone is complaining of bleeding problems. Um, try to get as much information as you can because it may be enough to ease your concerns at, or equally um, direct you to an urgent uh, referral. Um, look at the, the full blood count um, and think about doing clotting tests, but don't just do them routinely um, because, yeah, they may not necessarily be all that useful in guiding you. Um, and if there's any concerns, certainly in the Wigan area, you can always ask for help. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate it. It's a big topic to have asked you to cover. So thank you so much. Uh, my pleasure so that was a, an amazing chat with dr chris gregory and um, what were your learning points lisa um i guess starting at the beginning i thought um his approach to definitions is quite interesting where he talked about the fact that um with the blood test results and from a medical point of view and um, they're quite specific about the two standard deviations and people being within the normal range and the abnormal range um but then mm. also looking at it from the flip side from the patient point of view and what symptoms they might be experiencing and what that might be in terms of kind of worrying for bruising and bleeding so just quite like that perspective of the two different um approaches to thinking about definitions yeah that was really good and um, i really liked when he was talking about when when I asked about if everything's normal, uh, are we are we okay? Have we fully ruled everything out? Um, but it was really nice actually to think 
um, that actually, yeah, if we've done our history, uh, nice thorough history, done our investigations and examination and um, we've done the primary care side of things and we've not found anything, but we're still a bit worried or not quite sure, it's still okay to refer or to ask for advice and guidance if we're still not comfortable because it is quite a tricky world to navigate really and it might be that there's more indications for other specialist tests or it might be that yeah they can completely reassure us but yeah I think it's it's nice to know it's you know a valid reason yeah that was quite good actually um and then in terms of uh yeah the differentials I thought it was just quite helpful I know this was um this was adult specific and it wasn't pediatrics um but just thinking about non-accidental injury um even in adults um, as a cause, um, just to to have it in the back of your mind, and um, I thought that was useful to flag up, because um, it maybe it wouldn't have come to me in an adult context. Um, so I think it's useful to think about, you know, safeguarding domestic violence, things like that. Yeah, definitely. In terms of patterns of, of bruising, that gets drilled into you with safeguarding learning. Um, but yeah, it's definitely important to reiterate, isn't it? Exactly. And then the um, I'd, I'd written a little bit of crib sheet, which I hope is correct um, in terms of uh, things to worry about. <laughs> yeah, I really like this. We just talked about it before we pressed record. So yeah, hit, hit us, Lisa. <laughs> so um, if fibrinogen is low, it's bad. If the white cell count is really high or really low in terms of kind of malignancies and things and all the other bits that we need to look at, that's bad. If platelets are below 30, that's bad. Um, and if platelets are in the grey area and they've got new symptoms, then that's bad. <laughs> so that's yeah. my takeaway. I love that, yeah. Um, so that was a nice summary of like, right, when to really, really worry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, it was nice to sort of go through a little bit of the nuances. It's just so hard to cover and it's such a big topic. It does make you realise what you've asked of, uh, <laughs> of the consultant when you say, can you talk us all through about these things? Because um, I always wonder what, what test should I be doing? Um, where haemophilia screening fit in was quite good mm. um, to know. And then after I did read that BMG, article I was like oh should I be doing more vitamin c things but I know it's really extreme cases so unless they're really extreme cases don't (laughs) don't you don't need to do it just do your regular uh yeah your full blood kind the clotting that he talked about the blood film should be requested if there's a problem you've got your renal function and your liver um function Um, and then you've got if you've got specific things pointing you to specific areas Mm. that seemed to be the coverage didn't it yeah Oh, I did like, because I'd um, been re- reading the NICE guidelines, which we'll link to, um, but they've got a massive list of drugs that can cause problems. Um, so it was really nice to hear from him. What drugs has he seen cause problems um, in his, I know it's anecdotal, but um, it's they're clearly not a massive contribution to uh, the world of haematology consultants. Um, so that was quite reassuring. Um, but the fact that hopefully they'll be able to work it out because you'll be able to see on bloods and then hopefully pick it out. So thanks so much for everyone for listening and um, please have a look at the resources that we've put down at the bottom of the episode description if you'd like to. And we've got methods of getting in touch as usual. So we've got our Twitter and our email and uh, our survey is our favourite. And till next time. On Primary Knowledge Beast. This podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of GP Excellence, Wigan Borough CCG, Greater Manchester Training Hub and the GP Fellowship Programme, as well as Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership. Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2022. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before you make any treatment decisions. 
The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.